Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 4, Queen Amalasuntha and Byzantium gets annoyed. In the last episode, we got up to the year 526, with the death of King Theodoric the Great. We mentioned that he had had some succession issues. Not having any sons, he had tried to sort things out by marrying his daughter, Amalasuntha, to a Visigoth prince, Eutharic. Now, just a reminder, the Goths we're talking about with Theodoric are the Ostrogoths. This was a Visigoth prince. So this was the solution Theodoric tried to adopt, knowing that Germanic tradition would never accept a queen. Unfortunately, the prince did a rather silly thing and went and died a few years later. However, he did live long enough to give his bride two children, a son, Athelric, and a daughter, Mathesunta. Unfortunately, at the time of Grandpa Theodoric's death, the little tyke was only nine, and that meant something that would be tricky for a lot of the Middle Ages, a regency. Now, the Germanic tradition didn't really know what to do with a regency, especially not with a woman as regent. To make matters worse, Amalasuntha was very non-Gothic. She spoke Latin and Greek, and felt more of a Roman than a Goth. What's even worse, she tried to get her son involved in all that namby-pamby civilized Roman stuff, having him educated by Italian tutors. Furthermore, she went back to the policy of collaborating with the Italians that King Theodoric had started and later abandoned as he became more and more paranoid. Her plan was to try and bring Goths and Italians closer together and create a unified society. And perhaps, if she had succeeded in her intent, Italy would not have gone through the immense suffering that was just over the horizon. However, as is often the case in history, they didn't know that at the time. While we're playing the game of the what-ifs, we could also say that maybe a united Italy would not have given rise to the cultural splendors that the country can boast today. But we'll have time to talk about that. The Gothic nobles viewed Amalasuntha's administration with growing impatience and were especially offended by the way she was educating her son. As is often the case with children, you want them to be like you, but they are their own people. Oh, how they are their own people. And this was very much the case with the regent and her son, Athelric, where she was studious, responsible and wise, he was just not interested in studying and far from wise. She tried to impose her will on him with a very strict approach, even striking him in public. That was just one step too far for the Goths. She was forced to get rid of his old tutors and replace them with a group of Gothic peers just a bit older than her son. And when he hit puberty, the only lesson he was interested in learning was how to party hard. And in that, he was a really good student. He partied 
really hard, until in the year five three four, it caught up with him, and the young man, around the age of seventeen or possibly eighteen, died, maybe of cirrhosis. At this point, his mother was in deep stinky substance. She was a regent without a regentee, or someone to regentify. She had already been looking into a way out for some time. She had made contact with Emperor Justinian over in Constantinople, who had expressed his willingness to offer her asylum in Constantinople, something the emperor's formidable wife Theodora was not at all happy about. Over at the History of Byzantium by Robin Pearson, there is a really good episode on the Empress Theodora, and I suggest you go and check it out. Amalasuntha had even gone so far as to get on a ship prepared and loaded with treasure, but they're never actually taking it. She just sort of had it float across the Adriatic Sea a bit. Now, with her son and claim to power gone, she needed to act fast. As has been unfortunately the case for women for so many centuries, the only solution was to get a man involved to mess things up. Now. Some sources say she got married, while others say she simply raised someone to the throne to be her co-ruler. That was not the main issue. The problem was that, as far as bad choices go, when it came to the person she chose to keep her out of trouble and mostly alive, she made a doozy of a bad choice and went for one who put her into even more trouble. Indeed, the man she chose was a nasty piece of work called Theodahad, who also happened to be her cousin. He had built up quite a considerable power base in what was known then as Tusha. You'll recognize the root of what is now called Toscana, Tuscany. He had done this by bullying the surrounding landowners and encroaching on their land, as well as on the lands of the crown. And Amalasuntha had been forced to intervene and put him into place, and give the lands back, something Theodahad remembered very well and was not at all pleased about. He was, however, an able politician and a man of culture, at least for a Goth. No sooner had the power-sharing arrangement been set up than he whisked his cousin off to an island fortress on Lake Como. Theodahad. Yes. Why are we rowing out to that isolated castle in the middle of an island? Just a little break. You deserve a break after all that hard work, queening. Well, I suppose. But we have to govern. Don't you worry about that. Here we are. Off you go. Are you not staying? No. I'll go and take care of things for a bit. When are you coming to get me? Oh, on Thursday or never. What? Nothing. Have a nice time. Bye. Her little holiday did not last long. Theodahad had her killed just a few days later. So ended the reign of Amalasuntha. The year was five three five. She was forty years old and had reigned for almost ten. She is not remembered as a prominent figure in history. Squashed between the reign of her famous father and the history of the devastating war. That followed her death, but more recent studies have elevated her 
and she even has her own book now, so it's nice to think that maybe her memory has been avenged. So the dastardly Theodahad was now in full control, no doubt twirling his moustache and rubbing his hands together. However, there was a little teeny-weeny detail he hadn't taken into account, and that little thing was the Byzantine Empire. The emperor had already started his campaign to recreate the territorial glory of the Roman Empire, thanks in particular to the heroic general Belisarius. He was a Byzantine general who had showed talent and promise at a very young age as a member of the emperor's personal guard. He quickly rose through the ranks and in time became Emperor Justin and then Justinian's key military man. He had already taken back North Africa from the Vandals at the time of our story. One of the sources, specifically the Italian journalist and historian Indro Montanelli, points out that although this was seen as a great triumph at the time, it eliminated a kingdom which could have acted as a buffer for the future Muslim invasion of North Africa. But then we're going on to what-ifs again. While we're on digression mode, let me just warn you that we're going to mention a few names here. Don't worry about remembering them. I'll put them in the timeline on the website, and you just need to remember the main points anyway. Who was fighting who, and who won in the end? But I won't spoil it right now. The emperor, despite various more or less secret diplomatic dealings with both Amalasuntha and other Gothic nobles, decided that the de facto usurpation of Theodahad was a good enough excuse to take Italy back into the empire. Things kicked off in June of 535 with a two-pronged attack, with the Germanic general Mundus occupying Dalmatia, present-day Croatia, while Belisarius took advantage of the lightly inhabited and lightly guarded south to land in Sicily and take the island relatively quickly. The taking of the city of Palermo was particularly interesting. Indeed, the city was surrounded by very high walls, which were almost impenetrable by land. However, things were a bit different by sea. A ship could reach the city walls by sea, coming straight up next to them, and Belisarius noted that the masts of the ships were actually taller than the walls themselves in those points. So, he had a walkway hoisted up at the height of the ship's masts and stuck a bunch of archers on it. At that point, the soldiers guarding the walls found that the Byzantine archers could now rain a hail of arrows down upon them, and they very quickly abandoned their positions and allowed the Byzantines to enter the city. Meanwhile, towards the north, Theodahad dithered. Belisarius did not. After taking Sicily, he crossed the Strait of Messina on the westernmost side of the island and made his way to Naples, where the army met the first real resistance. The Byzantine army laid siege to the city, and one of the first things they did was to cut off the clean water supply by destroying a part of the aqueduct. This did not, however, put an immediate end to the siege, which dragged on. The solution finally came thanks to a soldier going for a late-night stroll. Indeed, the soldier happened to go by a section of the aqueduct that had been destroyed, and noticed that the opening was wide enough to allow a man to pass through, and, following it along, 
he found that he could follow it all the way back into the heart of the city. As soon as General Belisarius was informed, he sent a commando of soldiers in. They popped up supposedly in the house of an old lady and threatened to kill her so she kept silent, which is really not a nice way to treat an old lady. They let the rest of the army in and Naples was brutally sacked, marking the start of a devastation that would bring the peninsula to its knees once again. Up north, Theodahath's Goths did not give him a second chance at dithering, so he was deposed and replaced by the general Vitigus. Just to be sure, they also killed the failed king. This method of succession was perfectly in line with the Germanic tradition, which didn't necessarily require a bloodline. In the meantime, in late 536, Belisarius had arrived in Rome. The Goths there did not believe that they could hold out against the great general, so as Belisarius entered the city through the Azinara Gate, the Goths were marching out of the Flaminia Gate. The city was now in Byzantine hands. The new Gothic king, Vitigus, was a bit more proactive than Theoda had, and in March 537, with a large army, he laid siege to Rome. After their triumphant march northwards, things seemed a little bleak for the Byzantines. They had lost troops and left many to guard the cities they had conquered, so they sat facing a much larger Goth army. However, they had two great assets, the walls of the city of Rome and General Belisarius. For a year, he drove the Goths crazy. He used the superiority of his archers on horseback, who could rush up to the Gothic lines, take a few shots and gallop off, safely out of range of the Gothic archers who were all on foot. In general, he tried to avoid pitched battles, but at one point, after continued Byzantine success, despite his better judgment, the general gave in to the pressure of many of his captains and ordered the army out for a pitched battle. Although things initially went well for them, the superior numbers of the Goths soon pushed them back into the city. The siege was finally lifted in March of 538, first of all because Byzantine reinforcements were on the way, and secondly because Belisarius sent one of his commanders, John, known as John the Bloody, up towards central Italy to take the Piceni area. This was too close for comfort for Vitigus, because it was getting close to the city of Rimini on the Adriatic coast, and that was where he kept his treasure. So, the king took his army north. Unfortunately for him, there was no stopping the imperial advance. They took the rest of the Marche region, and then Romagna and Emilia, reaching all the way to Milan and taking it for a while before the Goths took it back. When they did, it was rather brutal, since the inhabitants were accused of siding with the Byzantines. To make a long story short, in the spring of 540, it seemed that the war would be coming to an end. An agreement between the warring parties stated that the empire would acquire everything to the south of the Po River, leaving the north to the Goths. As the Goths came away from the place where the agreement had been reached, their women spat at them, accusing them of cowardice. Vitigus was taken to Constantinople as a trophy and Belisarius also returned after refusing the invitation to be crowned as the new emperor of the Western Empire.
He was a soldier, not a politician, and he was needed on the Persian front. So, after five years of war, that was that. Only that wasn't that at all. That was something else. Next time, we'll see what happened after the agreement was reached and Belisarius left Italy. Until then, thank you very much as always for listening. Remember, you can get in touch with us via email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, or at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can find our Facebook page that you can click through to, or you can find the link to our YouTube channel where you can have a look at our History of Italy mini-docs on Italian cities. If you're feeling really generous, there's a donate button on the site so that when we finally decide what we want to do when we grow up, we may be able to continue with A History of Italy. And of course, please subscribe, rate and review. Although if you have some criticisms, perhaps shoot us an email and see if it's something we can't fix before reviewing. Thanks again for listening and until next time, arrivederci e risentirci. Sentire Media Hey podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.